Amen. Good morning, church. He is risen. Amen. Praise God. Welcome. We're going to open God's word. If you would, turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up on the text where we have been studying through as a church these last several weeks. And this, this week brings us to verse 5 of chapter 8. While you're uh, turning there, you just think about this with me. So we can sort of tame Easter, right? We can domesticate Easter, sentimentalize it, just pour syrup all over it, right? Hold it at a distance, and it really doesn't do its Easter awesomeness on us when we treat it as a historical artifact. And enter Romans 8. Romans 8 will not have it any other way. Romans 8 is Easter coming up alongside you, calling you by name, and snatching you out of death. It, is, it makes Easter personal. Resurrection gets up in your grill in Romans chapter 8 and brings about change. It is an awesome thing. So just think with me about Easter uncaged for just a second. So growing up, um, there were certain uh, comeback phrases that were popular in my middle school, Harold Keller, rather, elementary school, Harold Keller Elementary School. And you needed these comeback phrases because you didn't always know what to say back to somebody, but you had these phrases ready for you, right? So you could say, I know you are, but what am I? If somebody said something mean, you could say, if somebody said something mean, I am rubber, you are glue, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you, right? And that kind of served its purpose up until fifth grade. But when you were moving into middle school, you needed something you needed something else, something more sophisticated, something more middle school worthy, and something that would last you for years hence uh, in middle school into high school. And that phrase, for us at least, for me at least, was this kind of snarky, barbed question that you would ask to people. If you felt backed into a corner verbally, and if somebody was making a threat or bullying you and saying, if you do this, uh, I'm going to do this, and you would fire back and you would say, is that a promise or a threat? And in that moment, you were trying to make them believe that you would actually enjoy it if they did what they were threatening to do. Please do it. Please do it to me here in front of these people, right? You were bluffing, probably. Uh, they were probably bluffing as well. So it was just this bluff match where you're going back and forth in that, right? So is it a promise or a threat? And in a way, I think Easter is a promise and a threat. Let's take that second one first. So Easter is a threat. Easter rightly considered and rightly understood is a threat. What is it a threat to? Easter is a threat to status quo Christianity. Easter, Easter says, Matt, if you're going to put your trust and faith in this crucified and risen Jesus, everything's going to change now. Everything's going to start changing. You're not in control anymore. He moves in. The Holy Spirit moves in, takes up his court in your house takes up his throne in your soul and he's going to start uninstalling the old software and he's not going to ask you for permission first. He's just going to start doing what he does, bringing life where there was death, upending the script that you've been living by, right? And you're going to come out of the grave. Easter's going to become intensely intrusive and intensely personal. That's what Romans 8 is talking about. Easter is a threat to your old life and Easter is a promise of new life. I love the story that Jessica was sharing with us and even that sense in which you could sense God coming after her. 
you know, she, she said, I felt like I was catapulted into darkness. And then there she is fumbling through pages of the Bible. She didn't even know how the Bible got there. But here she is fumbling through the pages. She ends it up on this, this page of God's word where God says, I'm going to find you. And there's no place you can go to shake me. You can't shake me, Jessica. Right? And that's, Easter wants to do that. It wants to call you by name and say, you can't shake me. I'm moving in and life is coming with me. That's Romans 8. I'm moving in. And life is coming with me. Easter is an awesome promise because Easter says, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, you want to enter into this glorious news that he has provided for you, three promises. You will never be condemned, you will never be alone, and you will never be the same. Easter says that, I can promise you. You will never be condemned, you will never be alone, and you will never be the same. This passage announces glorious resurrection, and it is a resurrection that intrudes on your personal biography. It is rewriting your story. But, but here's where Paul actually begins in our text. He doesn't begin with all that good news and promise. He actually begins with bad news. So we're going to unfold our text in two stages. The first is this, bad news, namely, we aren't okay. We aren't okay. So just look down in your text, Romans 8, verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. Now look at the radical contrast. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, more contrast, but the mind of the spirit, mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law or God's commands. Indeed, it is unable to submit to God's commands. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what is Paul saying in this text? He's saying, bad news, you're not okay. We're not okay in our fallen condition, in our natural state. We don't want God to rule over us. That's the point. We don't want God to rule over us. And we're in a section of scripture in Romans 5. I'm not going to recap everything that we've been studying these past several weeks. But we're in a section of scripture where the Apostle Paul is saying, um, go with me here. There are two realms of existence for humanity. There is a realm of existence in Adam and a realm of existence in Christ. You're only in one or you're in the other. There's no, um, there's no anteroom, there's no holdover place in the middle. You're either in one or you're in the other. And you're under these kind of two representative kings over humanity. There's King Adam and there's King Jesus. And in King Adam's kingdom, sin and death and law reign and they're driving people further and further away from God. And there's only one way out of King Adam and it's through faith in King Jesus. And then once you come into the realm of King Jesus, here comes the spirit and life and freedom from sin. It's, all, it's totally different uh, realms of existence. He's talking about that here. Look, but, but here's the problem, is we're born in that realm. We're born into Adam's realm, which means we come into the world with a heart that doesn't desire for God to rule over us. If there is a God in heaven, I hope he will do my bidding because that's the only thing I'm interested in, is if, if this God will enter into a negotiation kind of agreement and we can work it out and haggle over the price, then he needs to do what I want him to do. If, I, if he will take my plan and make something of it, then we've got a deal. If not, he can move right along, right? Well, that's kind of what fallen man says. I don't want God to rule over me. I want his chair. 
I want his throne. If there's a throne in the universe, I want to sit on it because I want to run, run my life my own way. And Paul says there's a word for that. It's called living according to the flesh. Look at verse 5. He uses that phrase. Those who live according to the flesh. He uses that phrase again in verse 6. The mindset of the flesh. That is the total life direction of the flesh is death. And what the New Testament teaches is that no one can come to God apart from God doing a powerful work of resurrection on the human heart. Taking away a stony, resistant heart that doesn't want to submit to God's rules and giving us a fleshy, responsive heart that wants to trust and obey and follow Him. And what the New Testament calls that is new life, regeneration, resurrection, old you gone, new you has begun. And Jessica was talking about that where she said there was this moment of realization where the more I read and the more I studied, the more I realized I was already dead. That was the problem. I was dead. I was very much alive in this world, but I was dead to God. I was, I was not responsive to God and to his claim on my life as, as his creation, right? Until God raises us from death to life. That's the state that we're in. Our attitude is God help me fulfill my plans or get out of my way. That's, that's the way it is in fallen humanity. That's what he means in verse 7 when he says the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't mean that every act that we commit is just always terrible things stacked on terrible things stacked on terrible things. It means even when we do good things, we don't do them for the glory of God. We do them for the glory of me. For, for my own name, for my own sake, for my own ends. But when you become a Christian, there's resurrection, which means you get new desires, you have new passions, you have new wants, you have a new mission, new purpose in life, right? Now you want God to rule your life because I ran it into a ditch. I know what I can do with my life, right? That's, we become convinced and we trust him with our lives because we know he's good, and he's wise, and he loves me, and he's shown it to me in the cross of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. In verse 5 through 8, Paul is talking about the condition of our hearts before the lights go on. The condition of our hearts while we are still living according to the flesh, while we are still living in and under Adam. We don't want God to rule over us. And it's not only that. The next point is this. And we can't change our wants. We don't want him to rule over us, and we can't change our wants. In a fundamental way, you could say, uh, we don't want him to rule over us and we don't want it any other way. <laughs> we wouldn't have it any other way. That's what he means when he says, back in your text in verse seven, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable. So it doesn't and it can't. It won't and it can't. You just think about that for a second. Have you ever wanted to do something but you couldn't? Um, or you couldn't do something because you didn't want to. <laughs> so like for me, you could, um, I, I look at people sometimes eating cheese. I don't like cheese. I, I don't understand why you like cheese. You seem to be genuinely enjoying this when it's over the chips or when it's over the fries or whatever it might be. You seem to be honestly enjoying yourself. I just can't, I can't get in. I can't enjoy that myself. My, um, my son had a rude awakening to some of this reality because, uh, you know, when somebody asks you the question, what kind of music do you like? What you're supposed to say is, I like all kinds of music. 
You know, I like many different kinds of music. Fact is, you don't like all kinds of music. And, and my son Will discovered this uh, when he got himself a college roommate. Because his college roommate was an award, is an award-winning bluegrass banjo player. And so two days into his freshman year of college experience, meets, what's your name again? All right, okay. Meets the guy, we're roommates together, guy whips out the banjo, and Will just starts sending me videos of banjo guy. And just saying, listen to this dude, just tearing it up. You know? And then he sends me another video the next day, and it kind of sounds the same. Uh, and I'm getting videos for a couple of days. Well, we'll check them out the next week, and there are no more videos. Will is not sending me any more videos like, hey, check out my friend. He really is just tearing this up. You know, Devin went down to Georgia or dueling banjos or whatever. He's not sending me any more stuff, right? And then you fast forward to the end of the semester, and the word banjo is forbidden. It is, it is a curse word, right? You just say the word banjo to Will, and his whole mood just <laughs> sours, right? It's just had that immediate effect on him. And the same thing is true, right? There are things where you could invite me to join you in it, and, and I would say I won't and I can't, and those would be interchangeable. If you said, Matt, let's, uh, let's listen to talk radio together. I, mean, I won't and I can't. Matt, let's order more cauliflower. Matt, let's gnaw on this big block of cheese together, right? All of those are I won't and I can't. And really, there's an inverse relationship. I won't because I can't, and I can't because I won't, right? They're, they're equally true. They're mutually self-referential, right? You ever become aware of that reality? That, I think that's what the Apostle Paul is kind of talking about here. The problem is when we're born in Adam, we're born in the flesh. Our wants are broken. We want all the wrong things. You ever come to a place in your life where you look at things that you've been wanting and you've been seeking life from them and you stop and realize, I've been going to this thing for life and it's not giving me life. And I'm just starting to realize, maybe it's killing me. I, I feel like maybe this thing is actually hurting me instead of giving me life. It becomes so true when we read through the New Testament that there are a thousand ways to be broken and there's only one way to be made whole. There's only one way to be made whole and it's Easter. It's resurrection, walking across the room, calling you by name and saying, I'm snatching you out of death and I'm doing it now and I'm not asking for permission. I'm gonna save you. I'm gonna bring you from death to life. It's glorious. But the bad news is we don't want it. We don't want resurrection life, not in our fallen condition. So the bad news is we're not okay, and the good news is God has done something about it. God has done something about it. What has he done? Two things. Jesus Christ died to take our penalty, meaning the, the, the punishment that our sins deserve from a holy God, Jesus took that in our place. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he hung suspended between heaven and earth. He is the one mediator between God and man, between a holy God and sinful humanity. And Jesus takes our sin, lays it on himself, is flayed on the cross, and inhales 
the judgment of God against human sin as a substitute in the place of everybody who believes he drains the cup of God's wrath, bone dry, not a drop left for anybody to drink if you'll just trust in him. He says, it's finished. And what he means by it's finished is your condemnation is finished. Your judgment, I already took it on the cross. There's quite simply and literally none left. I took your judgment in your place on the cross. That's why as you come to the end of Romans chapter 7, and, and Paul seems to be talking, he's talking about the law and its powerlessness to change us. And he's saying the law just keeps barking orders, but it's not helping us fulfill the orders. It's barking commands and it's not empowering us to fulfill the commands. And he's saying, what can rescue me from the barking voice of the law? And Paul says in chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. And he says, because what the law could not do, Law couldn't move the needle. Law couldn't change the heart. But what the law could not do because it was weakened by sinfulness, right? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Friend, try harder is not the Christian message. It is not the Christian gospel, right? We don't need more rules. What we need is new hearts. Enter resurrection. Enter Romans 8. Enter Easter. Paul is talking about Romans 7 and Romans 8 about the difference between relating to God on the basis of law and our performance of said law. And then he's talking about in Romans 8 our relationship to God on the basis of the indwelling spirit prompting from within change. Animating us from inside and bringing change. An internal, in-house Easter. Right? God's laws and commands don't change us. They only produce death. That's what we studied last month, right? They only produce death and more death. It's kind of a morbid illustration, but I'll just risk it anyway. My, uh, my brother's been in pastoral ministry for, for many years, and uh, he served on the pastoral staff of a church up in Arkansas many years ago. And it was a large church, so there were always, you know, needs in, in the church, and people in the hospital who needed to be visited and prayed for and, and so forth, Right? Uh, so one of the things, that, the way that they went about caring for members is they had the pastoral staff on rotation. So if you were, if it was your week, you were on call that week, meaning any member who goes into the hospital and wants an elder to come and pray for them, um, you're on call. So it's your week to do that. Well, so Paul would rotate in and there were other, all the other pastors rotated in. Well, there was one guy who rotated in and in the past month, all three of his rotations um, he would walk into the room and he would, he would pray for a member who wasn't in terribly bad condition and that particular member would pass from this life uh, into heaven. <laughs> and he, he felt so bad. He's like, listen, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. It wasn't, obviously, it wasn't his fault, right? I mean, he's just going in and he's praying and that's up to a sovereign God and he has obviously well-intended, cares for this member, wants to see them uh, healed and blessed, and they, they meet Jesus a couple of days after he prays for them. And to, to make matters worse, um, in-house, now this is not a best practice, but in-house, behind closed doors, the other pastors started calling him the undertaker. <laughs> because he was three for three. His last, <laughs> his last three visits, he prayed for people, and, and they met uh, the Lord Jesus just days later. 
And in a way, it's kind of like Romans 7 and Romans 8 are kind of sort of doing the same thing. In Romans 7, um, the law walks into the room and, and, and it walks into the room of the dying patient and there's the dying patient and it's like, who's going to rescue me from the undertaker? Right, you imagine, climb back into that illustration for just a moment and there you're the member. And you know this guy's record, these past three people he's visited and the door cracks open and in comes that person. And what do you say? Not you. <laughs> Send the other one, right? Send anybody else on the staff. Send the, the facilities person. Send the groundskeeper, right? Anybody but the undertaker, right? Well, that's what happens in Romans 7 is the law walks into the room, intends to do good, but when law comes into contact with sin, it produces death. When law comes into contact with sin, it becomes the undertaker. And so that's all we get in Romans 7. Then we walk into Romans 8 and the door opens and who comes in? It's not the law. It's the spirit. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And that's what's happening all through Romans 8. The Spirit walks into the room and the people start to live. The Spirit walks into the room and, and people get strength in the midst of great weakness. All they're, they're just groaning and the Holy Spirit is interceding for them and bearing them up to God. It's, the Holy Spirit's work in Romans 8 is he's bringing Easter to your doorstep. He's making resurrection relevant in your daily life. Friends, it's April the 4th. It's Easter Sunday, 2021. You couldn't pick a better day to say yes to life than today. <laughs> so that Easter could walk up to you in a sense and say, I'm snatching you out of death and I'm doing it before you leave. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> if, if Easter became something deeply and profoundly personal. Jesus Christ died to take our penalty, and second, the Holy Spirit resides to give us power. The Holy Spirit resides to give us power. Look in the text again in verse 9. So he's been talking about the flesh and being in, in Adam, right, where you're unable to keep the law and you don't want to. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you're not in a mortal body. He's not talking about your mortal body as your flesh. He means you're not in the realm where sin calls the shots. You're not in Adam anymore. You are now not in the flesh but in the spirit. Keep reading. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. That just means the body's dying because of sin. It means that even though we've trusted in Jesus, we still have mortal bodies. So keep going. Christ is in you, body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him, here's Easter, who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. What's the point? The point of this, these verses is Easter is not stuck in first century Palestine. Jesus walks out of the tomb 2,000 years ago to set off a chain reaction. It is the Easter that launched 1,000 Easter's so that resurrection life could find you at your home address. You know, there's a song that maybe many of us learned in Sunday school growing up, and it seemed like the song was just kind of teaching you about the human skeletal system, right? The backbone connected to the hip bone, the hip bone connected, just kind of, right, thigh bone and all the rest, and it's moving through the human body. Well, it wasn't about human anatomy. It was about theology. It was a song sung by slaves in the American South. It was a spiritual 
they knew their Bibles. And what they knew about their Bibles was there's a story in the Old Testament where God comes to a prophet named Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37. And God says, Ezekiel, I want to I show you something. And he takes Ezekiel up to a, a vantage point and he looks down at this valley and the valley's filled with the dead bones of, of men. And he says, as far as you could see, just dry bones in all directions. And if you were Ezekiel trying to put this scenario together, how, how could such a situation take place? You probably were formulating a hypothesis that there, apparently a battle was fought in this valley and these are the people who lost. This is a dead army and apparently this battle happened centuries ago because their bones are like bleached by the sun, dry over the course of century after century after century. There's just deep deadness in all directions. And God says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Can, can this valley wake up? And Ezekiel, he's, he's, too, he's too modest to say, no, that's impossible. But he's also not optimistic enough to say, yes, absolutely. So what he says is, God, only you know what can happen with this dead valley. And God says, I want you to do something. I'm going to put words in your ears, and you're going to speak those words out of your mouth, and you're going to prophesy over these bones, and then my spirit is going to come. And Ezekiel says, so I started to prophesy. God said, say this, and I said this over the valley of dry bones, and then the spirit comes and begins to whoosh through the valley, and the bones started rattling, and the foot bone connected to the ankle bone, and the ankle bone connected to the knee bone. And they heard the word of the Lord. And next thing you know, the spirit breathes on those skeletons and covers them with flesh and it becomes this living, standing army. And God says, all right, now you've seen the picture. Let me tell you what it means. And this is what God said to the prophet Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Not you might live, you shall live. And I would suggest to you, church, that Romans 8 is simply Ezekiel 37 coming to pass. It's Ezekiel 37 finding you at your home address. And that's the dynamic at play in Romans 7 and in Romans 8. There's a sense in which you look at Romans 7 and what do you see? A valley of dry bones. And they're not coming alive anytime soon because the law kills. And they live under the blazing sun of the law of God. And then Romans 8 says the spirit gives life. The law kills, but the spirit gives life. And there's this breath that sweeps through the valley of Romans 8 and suddenly everybody's alive. The resurrection that is most prominently featured in Romans chapter 8 is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself on that first Easter. To be sure, it's downstream of that. To be sure, it's wired up to that original empty tomb. But the resurrection most prominently featured in Romans 8 is yours. It's your resurrection for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Love Jessica's story. She so beautifully captures it when she says, I found myself on the floor in a mess of tears. 
She says, I'm fumbling through pages of the Bible and I read these words, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're, you're there. In other words, it was God moving in on the soul saying, you're not gonna be able to shake me. Today, you're starting to live. Today, you will live. Resurrection finds your home address starting now. You know, that's what Easter wants to do. It, it doesn't wanna be held at arm's length. It wants to come and snatch you out of death snatch you out of sin, out of guilt, out of slavery, out of shame, out of despair. If you ask the question, if you've ever looked and surveyed over your life and thought, there's a whole lot of deadness here, just honestly, there's a lot of deadness here. And if you took that observation and turned it in God's direction and you said, Lord, can these bones live? Romans 8 shouts, oh yes. They can live, and they can live now. They can live today. God isn't hiding from anybody. He's out here for the taking. He is available today. Doesn't matter what you've done, Jesus can cleanse it. Doesn't matter how far you are, he can find you. The thousand ways to be broken, there's only one way to be made whole. Let me ask you this question. Who in the world would want a Christianity that leaves you the way you were before? Who would want a Christianity without... Easter, without new life, resurrection life, new power. Don't just look at Easter as a historical artifact. Uncage it. Let it loose. Let it do its glorious Easter thing in your soul, in your life. Don't let Easter pass you by, not this Easter. Have you believed in Christ? Have you run to him for rescue? What do I do? So if that's, if that's me, Matt, what do I do? Here's, here's what you do. You turn from self-rule and you put your trust in the one hope of the world, Jesus Christ, the only one who died, the only one who can bring you to God, the only one who can cleanse and forgive all of your sins. And you put your trust, you lean your whole life on him. And you might say back to me, well, I thought that in the flesh we never want to do that. Well, my question to you is, do you want to? Because if you want to, He's already on your one yard line. That want had to come from somewhere and it didn't come from Adam and it didn't come from you. So if you want it, let's do it. If you want life, let's get it. Let's get Easter for everybody here. Nobody walks out without internal Easter, internal resurrection.